0: Good morning everybody. God bless you. Good to see you. Uh, welcome to Calvary Chapel. i uh, guide you here this morning with us as our second service as we uh, open the Word of God and hear what Jesus wants to speak to our hearts. So uh, will you please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1. We've come probably about as far as verse 10. Verse 10 here. But we're, as a, you know, we're just going to take a few moments to go back and look at sort of the things that have been pointed out by Pastor Paul, the Apostle Paul. And, but first I'd like to begin with prayer and, and then we'll get into the Word of God. Father, we just come before you and we ask for a stillness of heart right now. We ask just to allow all the things to melt away that are distracting us from you, Jesus. That we'd be laser focused on all that you want to show us and the gentleness and way you want to speak to us and your love for us and Lord as we study the scriptures here this morning one verse Lord that's going to take us on a journey through just your unending love and your care for your children and your people and Lord you're just so good to us you're so good all the time Lord and we just praise you for that and we just praise you for your holy word and we praise you that we're not wandering aimlessly and that God we we know who and where we belong. Thank you, God, for redeeming us. And so now, Lord, we pray, uh, just knock our socks off this morning with just your love and your word and your holiness and your truth. And, and may we just, uh, we just relish in the joy of knowing that you're ours and we're yours and we're madly in love with you. We pray this and ask this in your name, Jesus Christ, our God, our love. And all God's people pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we have come as far as verse 10, but before we jump into verse 10, we remember that we're in a church here, well, in Thessalonica, obviously we're in Harrisburg, but I mean, in Thessalonica, as we've been reading, and God has uh, put on the through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through direct revelation to Pastor Paul to write this letter back to Thessalonica while he's in Corinth around AD 50 to 52. And as he's reading or writing, I should say, to this model church, and we, we get that idea from verse 7, the example, that they were an example to all of Macedonia, to all of um, Achaia, that He has a few things that he's going to bring up that he wants to commend them for. Really say, wow, praise the Lord. You're stepping out. You have fulfilled your calling. Your calling and election has been made sure. And we want... We want to just celebrate that. He wants to pray, and he wants to thank God for that. And I think those are the things we thank God for, the things we do celebrate and rejoice in. So if you look back in verse 1, he talks about Paul, Silas, and Timothy. He says, To the church of Thessalonica, in God, there is no such thing of a ch- as truly a church by definition, a Christian church, if it's not in God, right? It's in man, and that's scary as all get out. And uh, through the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we see the twin sisters, grace to you and peace, right? Speaking to the Ecclesia, to the church, to the that's Greek for the church, the body of Christ, right? And then he turns around and says, From our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ again. And he says, We give thanks to God always for you, making all mention of you in our prayers. He's thanking God for their walk, he's thanking God for their love for Christ. That's just a pastor's heart, man. He loves these people. He loves them, and he can't stop thinking about them. And I pray that that's that's what the the Holy Spirit is doing in the bride of Christ here, that we don't just come here and punch a Sunday ticket or a Wednesday ticket, but this is home. This is family, that we invest in each other, that we, we be not only hearers but doers of the Word of God. And that we exemplify that same type of love one to another, especially with new folks. If you're new here and somebody comes up and gives you a hug, don't be offended, right? That's just the, the way we do things. I know we're living in COVID days, so everybody's like, hang on now. All right, so if you fist bump them, and then when they turn around, you give them a hug, right? <laughs> no, no, you better be, you gotta be respectful. But you get my point, right? And that we were created to love and to bear each other's burdens, that's what God is telling us. We need this. And I think of all those gathered on the cafe side this morning, those meeting on the other side of the, the church. We, everybody in this room, we love you. And you over there love us. We know that. And those online in your home right now watching. He says, remember without ceasing your work of faith. What is he speaking about there? He's talking about salvation. That's the only work of faith there is, Right. Anything else is works of man, striving, and certainly not the gospel of Jesus Christ. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And then he says your labor of love. And that's exactly what it is. It is a labor of love. That idea of of coming alongside each other, being others focused, not letting someone walk out of this room when you can tell something's heavy on their heart. You know, and it's like, well, I got to go here. I got to go there. Yeah, well, that all wait. That person right there that God has put you in their presence, you need to be with them now. That's not what Christ said. Christ didn't say when it's convenient. And so, again, I'm not browbeating anybody here. I'm just saying this is what Scripture teaches it looks like. It's not a matter of of convenience. Nothing in Christianity has ever been a matter of convenience. He says, in patience of hope in our Lord. Because what are they hoping in? To be with Jesus, the resurrection. That's what they're hoping in, of Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election of God. Again, speaking, we talked about it last week, of the security of salvation. That they were saved and they can't lose that. We went through many passages. I had somebody, I told first service midweek. Uh, somebody called and they said, hey, we want to talk to you about the different passage." Man, I've never heard that concisely like that. Brought right to the point. I've always wondered if I could lose my salvation, you know, and I, it was a really good call that individual, and I thought, man, what a beautiful thing that we can all have in Christ Jesus, security, that we can't lose our salvation, that we don't have to wonder, that we don't have to, we know, absent with the body, present with the Lord, that's a guarantee, right, and we know that, and and no one and nothing should ever try to steal that joy or that hope from us, we know that's a work of Satan. Verse five, he says, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, right? So the word spoken, but it didn't end there is what he's saying. But also in the power, there's power in the word of God and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. That's what God does. He gives us assurance. As you know, what kind of men we were among you for your sake? These were men of God. Sometimes they spoke more by what they didn't say, not just what they said, by the way they act, by their thought, by their character. We can learn a whole lot about men and women by just observing them, can't we? Just watching. Is there compromise? I mean, we're all simply tempted. I mean, Corinthians tells us that we've all been tempted in like ways. But what do we do? Do we answer that temptation? God says he provides a way out of every single temptation that we have. He didn't say trial. Please be very mindful of that. He didn't say trial, he said temptation. And Jesus Christ acquainted with all grief, all sorrow, all suffering. So when we go to Jesus Christ and we pray and ask him for help, this isn't somebody that's not personal with our suffering. This isn't somebody that's distant from our suffering. This is somebody that's bearing and suffering along with us. He has gone through these things, spit on, mocked, beaten, crucified. Because what? He wanted to save a lost and dying world, and the religious leaders wouldn't have it because he was drawing attention away from religion to relationship. And that meant they were getting undercut, and they didn't like that. Jesus was the beauty, the beauty of the fullness of truth and love. We'll talk more about it in chapter two. But he says, For your sake, and you became followers of us. And again, this wasn't Paul being prideful at first. This is, this is the direction we see of us. Because of what? Because when we were young in Christ, we didn't maybe know how to read our Bibles yet. We hadn't gone through. So we looked to other believers. How are they behaving, right? And then we learned from those things. And then we began to no longer look to our brothers and sisters. We began to look to who? Jesus. That becomes the example, isn't it? Jesus Christ. Having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. I'm sure there's some of us here sitting this morning that are dealing with affliction. You're dealing with oppression this morning. You're dealing with difficulty. Maybe you're fighting depression. Maybe you're fighting anxiety. Maybe you got people at work that are trying to get rid of you because you love Jesus. They may not say it that way, but you can read the writing. You're different. You love God. You love people. And for some people, that just, boy, that gets under their, steers them wrong, doesn't it? They're not mad at you. You just represent Christ in their life. So we're not surprised when we see affliction. So that you become example to all of Macedonia and Achaia who believe. This is a model church. And Paul's commending them because they're doing all these things. We don't want to play church and play Christian here, do we? I don't. And we won't. I, 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 assume close the place, you know, I assume close the place down if that ever happens. We're not going to go through the motions. I, I'm honest. I'm sincere with you about that. We'll never do that. Christ and him crucified. That's what was preached by uh, Paul to the Corinthians. And that's what will always be preached here. Jesus. He's the shepherd. My opinion doesn't matter. What does God have to say to us? We gather to hear the word of God, the truth of God, by the spirit of God. Amen. <coughs> And this is what the model church looks like. This is what it's supposed to look like. It's supposed to love one another. It's supposed to bear each other's burdens. Please notice, even in this model church, they're facing affliction. It's not as though because they go to a a perfect church that all of a sudden they no longer struggle. That's not what we read. What we read is that they bear each other. They come alongside each other. They're there to lift each other up, to encourage each other. Again, you you can't play Christian. You can't play church. It's not genuine. For from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth. I love that. He says, because you don't play Christian and you don't play church. He's going to say, wherever you go, whatever you do, people see Jesus in you. Hallelujah. People see, I'm looking at all of you right now this morning. People see Jesus in you. Everywhere you go and everything you do. Not only in Macedonia, not only in Harrisburg and West Shore, right? Not only in East Shore, not only in Aki, but in every place. Because it can't be hidden. Your faith toward God has gone out. You see that? That's what's on display. Your faith toward God. So that we do not need to say anything. He says, basically, I don't need to convict you or condemn you of anything. Pastor Paul saying that. Or Timothy and Silas. None of them need to, because this church was behaving like a church that has their eyes on Jesus and not on themselves. It's not a self-centered church. It's not a church that's inward focused. It's a church that's focused on Christ. And because of that submission and surrender, they're able to turn around and experience what it is to be led by God and to follow God's commandments and statutes, His judgments and to receive the blessing, and as we read earlier, the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's what awaits you and I when we do it God's way. Verse 9, for they themselves declare concerning us what matter of entry we've had to you, and you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So we see repentance, metaniah, or metaneia change of heart, right? And what did that result in? That resulted in them throwing out the junk. The junk was gone. It wasn't going back to Egypt looking at the flesh pots. No. The, the, the computer causes you to sin because of the pornography and everything. Guess what? Throw out the computer. But get, the real problem, friends, ain't the computer, is it? Right, Jesus says you could take the eye and pluck it out. And you have two eyes. you got two arms, two legs. Certainly he's not telling us to masquer ourselves. You know. What's he saying? He's saying that the real issue is in the heart. You know? So I just saved you a couple grand. How about that, right? No, he saved me a couple grand because if I didn't have my heart right and I don't constantly give that to the Lord Jesus, every one of us, like he said, have been tempted in all ways, every one of us. We need to stay on guard on those things. All right, men, women, stay on guard. Keep your guard up against Satan. And because of that, anything we see that um, he defines for us here, you've heard me say it before, anything between your heart and Jesus is idolatry. And he says, in actuality, what ends up happening is you take those things that are between your heart and God and the Lord Jesus removes them. And now you have a choice of whether you choose to try to put them back. You don't have to. You don't have to go after the things of old. You're a new creation. All things have been made new. You are righteous. Pastor, if you knew what I did this morning. Hey, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying you will never sin again. What he's saying is he loves you. His desire is that you don't sin. You desire not to sin. And because of his blood, you've been forgiven, past, present, and future, from all unrighteousness. That's the gospel of grace. You can't earn it. You can't lather it up and work it. You simply receive it and believe it. And then you pass it on to others as a beautiful, cherished gift of true love from Jesus. And that brings us to our passage this morning, verse 10. And to wait, this is an uh, chi in the Greek conjunction, and now because of these, now I want you to understand this, it's in part and parcel because of these things that are happening. And now you're waiting or you wait for his son. Who's that? The father's son, Jesus. Where is he located? From heaven, right? In heaven, seated at the right hand or standing at the right hand of the father. Whom he raised from the dead. Who raised Jesus from the dead? God the Father. We read Jesus Christ in other passages. And then the Holy Spirit tells us in other passages. What's the answer? God. God. Three in one, right? Whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus. Now, this is very, very important. We're going to spend the rest of our time this morning studying this. I mentioned to you last week we were going to look at the eschatology, end times, prophecy, events that are occurring, as well as things that are talked about. Before we can even get to a lot of those end-time events, we need to understand what's the purpose of the end times, the Jacob's trouble, the day of the Lord, you know, as we would call it in Scripture, or Scripture teaches us it's called. He refers to it as a wrath. Okay, we're going to study that because there are some folks that actually believe that the wrath is pertaining to the church, that the church is going to experience this wrath. But we really need to study in Scripture. I've got, I don't know, maybe 10, 12, 15 verses, whatever we have time for this morning. We could spend days studying this. This is not a New Testament concept, by the way. We'll see some of that. This is something that was understood by the the early church fathers, as we'd say, or the patriarchs of the faith. This is something that is incorporated in the entire council of God. This is very, very important. This isn't a New Testament idea or ideology. I draw you back to Genesis 3. The SEED, capital letter. Because of Eve and Adam's sin, they were waiting for one that would redeem them. From the very beginning, the day, the moment right after original sin, they were looking for redemption. They were looking for one that would be coming to do that. Whether that would be born in the flesh through Eve, you know, or whether it would be born years later, and then we got introduced to the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and we started learning more and more, and just so happens through the Holy Spirit. The Lord's been bringing us through that in Samuel, hasn't he? On Wednesday nights, which is why I encourage if you're not attending Wednesdays to attend, because it's so cool to watch God tie these scriptures all together. But he says something here very important. He says, He raised from the dead even Jesus who delivers. Now, I'm a simple man, friends. We're all simple people, aren't we? God's not grammatically challenged. What does deliver mean? It means what it sounds like it means. Deliver, to remove, to take you out of, to to not have you go through, to deliver you. He says he delivers us. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the ecclesia, isn't he? He's talking to the church in Thessalonica. He's not turning around. And by the way, he didn't say, I deliver Thessalonica. He didn't say he delivered Thessalonica. Uh, Pastor Paul, pa- you know, Timothy and Silas, he used a plural word, us, a term, meaning unity, the bride, the ecclesia, the church. It's not the building. It's church when you show up because the Holy Spirit in you coming together, worshiping our Lord makes it the church, right? Because Jesus lives in us and the Holy Spirit, First Corinthians 4 and 6. And what does he deliver us from? From the wrath to come. What, what is this wrath he's, he's writing about and he's telling us about? Well, do you realize in your New Testament that right in the very beginning, right after we get off to the, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and then we introduce to a man by the name of John the Baptist, who was Jesus's cousin, as many of you know. He was about six months older, right? Uh, the Bible teaches us that he was a forerunner. Right, One that would, uh, if Israel would have received him at that time, that would come as a type or as a fulfillment of the prophecies, that he would have been an Elijah, okay, had they only received Jesus Christ and believed that way, but because they rejected him, and Jesus in Christ himself said that. So I think we should start in the beginning. Let's go back. I don't mean the beginning like Genesis, the beginning, bara, you know, ex nihilo, that beginning. Uh, in the Hebrew, I mean beginning. Sorry, Hebrew joke, bara. He means beginning. Um, I mean the beginning in Matthew chapter 3. Okay, please turn there with me as far as our New Testament gospel. It's okay, guys. You can laugh. You can wake up. It's all right. Nothing bad's going to happen. It's his word. So if we look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. I want you to see this um, very, very important. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, we are in the passage in the account of John the Baptist. We know that, again, John the Baptist was out baptizing in the wilderness. Now, he was not baptized in the way Jesus Christ baptized or the way we baptize today. He was doing it with what? Only. Water. Right? Jesus Christ baptized with what? Water and fire right? We understand the difference, Holy Spirit speaking. John's dealing with the physical aspect, Nicodemus, Nick at night, and John chapter 3 is going to have that same question. Wait a minute, you want me to go back in my mother's womb? What do you want me to do? I'm, I'm you know, he's dealing on the physical plane, and yet Jesus is dealing with the spiritual plane. He's, he's way up here dealing on the spiritual plane, and they're still dealing with the physicality, and, and that's understandable, right? It's easy for us to go back to Nicodemus or Nick at night and go, Nick, what are you doing? What do you mean are you supposed to? Clearly you can't, you know, from a physical Perspective. Do that. What's really going on? And it's it's easy for us to look back and come to that easy conclusion. But we're talking about very spiritual things. As Jesus Christ had said to him, "How can I explain to you the things of heaven? Spiritual things. If you can't understand the very things that we are talking about here, even on earth, he he wants to reveal and open these things to us, that we would have eyes and ears to see, okay, and hear, okay. So in chapter three, look at verse seven. Now. What had happened is he was baptizing with water, so John is out there, and he's in the wilderness, and these men were coming out to be baptized, and they wanted to be turned from repentance. So they were taking an outward profession of an inward transformation, right? They, were, they wanted to repent for their sin. Certainly, it's never the water. It wasn't like I could take some water and slap it on you or, you know, s- sprinkle it on you, and you're going to go, oh, I'm forgiven for my sins. It's not how it works. It's not what the Bible teaches either even in the Greek, means immersion, but let's not go there. The point is, that's not what we're talking about in light. He's telling these men that are coming out, men that are made up of the Pharisees and Sadducees, that makes up roughly 70 men, part of the Sanhedrin, okay? Pharisees believed in life after death. They believed in angels. They, as you know, not all of them, Paul, right? Nicodemus, some of them believed in Christ, but the majority of them did not. The Sanhedrin were another group of men. They didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in angels. They believed in maximizing your life here, which is why many of the Sanhedrin, as far as the Pharisees, were very wealthy because they believed in maximizing their life here. There was no afterlife, okay? So even within religious sects, you get two different approaches to Judaism and religion. Jesus is all about relationship. He's not about religion. So as we study this, please look what he says. When he sees the Sanhedrin or the Pharisees and Sadducees coming out, they're coming out to his baptism. Look at verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming out to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Whoa. We read that today and go, oh, that's, what's that? (laughs) He's saying, you sons of the devil. Okay, today in a derogatory manner, if somebody said you're a son of a dog, you'd be like, whoa. I know what you're saying. That's a very foul thing to say, isn't it? Derogatory. He's saying you're sons of the devil. It's even even worse. He's calling them right out. And what does he say to them? Who warned you? Sorry, I'll read the scripture. He turns around and he said to them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Circle that in your Bible's wrath. Please notice with me, he didn't have to explain to them that wrath is coming. They acknowledged that. They knew it. They didn't go, "Um, John, what do you mean by wrath? Can you explain that? They didn't also have to question what he meant when he said, you brewed of vipers either. Oh, they understood, didn't they? Because they challenged Jesus on everything. They challenged John on so many things when it came to his teaching. This wasn't something they didn't understand exactly what he's saying. Oh, they knew what John the Baptist was accusing them of. Who warned you to flee this wrath that's coming? Because they knew wrath was coming. They had read Isaiah. They have have read the suffering servant. They knew the prophecies. They knew that there was coming to judgment upon the earth for the iniquities and sin of mankind, of humanity. Now, much of Israel would have believed because they were nationalistic under the law that they themselves were not part of that judgment. Right? That's only to the, as they would say, they use the derogatory term, goyim. You right? don't repeat that around other people. That's a very derogatory term, it means to the Gentile. It's a very nasty and direct way to insult the Gentile, a non-Jew. And they said that's for them. The Jewish people never needed uh, proselytization, nothing like that, because they had their father Abraham. And they even told that to Jesus. We have our father Abraham, what about you? They accused Jesus of being the worst of all the Jews. Even today, if you go over to Israel, they will yell those blasphemies to Messianic Jews or to Christians as they witness in the public squares. They will yell those things today, even. We have recorded it on on a a CD or DVD if you ever want to see it. We have one where they basically are doing that, saying Jesus was the worst of the Jews. We're to love the Jewish people, though. Mm -hmm. Because you know what? We, too, were in the dark at one time, weren't we? We, too, didn't walk in the light. And Jesus Christ is not done with the Jewish people. Jeremiah 31, 31 says they will inherit and they will receive that new covenant one day when they cry out to Yeshua, when they cry out to Messiah, to Jesus Christ. But we read that this wrath was to come and this wasn't something that was foreign to them or something they didn't know about. They expected it. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 21. Let's look at verse 23. We could have looked at this in Matthew 24. It's a parallel passage. It's what we call a harmony of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a typical harmony. John is more theological in nature, slightly different. I'm so grateful for the fact that each Gospel is slightly different. They were different information. That helps us to understand just scientifically uh, that there was genuineness to this because there was no cooperation. They weren't turning around and they weren't uh, just all trying to say the same thing. You know, to kind of be in cahoots, so to speak. No, no, no. Each presented the account through the Holy Spirit accurately. And they were unique in some of these accounts. But if you take a harmony of it, you can turn to Luke chapter 24. At this point, the apostles are going to be asked, right? You know what? Let's back up to Luke 21 for a minute. I go back and forth because I, I, I want to show one other thing. I'm getting ahead of myself. I get so excited in the word of God because it's all in there. That sauce ragu had nothing on this. Verse 23, some of you got that. You know, you remember the commercials. You're awake still? Good. All right. Chapter 21, verse 23 in Luke. He, we read, but woe... To those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days, for they will be a great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. Now, who is this people? Well, if you read in context what he's talking about, right? In verse 7, he begins by asking the question, or they, disciples, they ask him, teacher, but when will we see these things be? And what will be the sign there by when these things are about to take place? The sign of what? The sign of the times, the sign of the ages, right? No temple, no stone will be laid upon itself. What, what is he talking about? He said, and the end of the church age, the destruction of truth. When will all these things be? We know they needs be. When are they going to be? We understand today signs and changes of times and epochs. We're living in what age? We call it the church age, right? After the church age, we know is the great tribulation. And after that, we know we go into a millennial reign or the time of Christ physically on the earth and reigning for a thousand years, right? And that's an age two. That's a time. And we'll get to all that. We'll read it in scripture. But I said, we'd spend a lot of time looking at prophetic nature, the, the prophecies and, you know, the different things here. He says, but woe to those who are pregnant. He's talking primarily to the Jewish people, right? Because he's talking to Israel, the disciples, they're in Israel. The Jewish people are asking this question and they're saying, what are we going to see? And God very clearly points it out. He says, there's going to be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people upon the Jews, upon Israel. Notice it doesn't say the church. God's not grammatically challenged. It doesn't say the ecclesia, nothing in the Greek. He's not speaking about that. Why? Because we're not here. Something called the harpazo, the rapture. We're going to get to that. But I first want you to see that he's telling the Jewish audience, who's primarily in context here, that they are going to go to wrath. Do you know today that they have bought land in Petra? You know, Petra? They're going to flee to Petra, many of the hills in that area, the mountainous, stony area. And they've built like little, what I'll call, we would call them motels and hotels, but more motels where you can go and you'll be able to rent and different things like that. They have already acknowledged and bought property to many of the Jews so that when it comes time to flee in these last days and Jacob's trouble, they have a place to go to hide because they're told and they believe the scriptures. They just haven't called out to Yeshua, Jesus. They haven't called out to Jesus yet. But they know. You can't say they don't know. You don't buy land in Petra. You don't buy things. I don't buy these things if I don't think I'm going. They know. We're going to read uh, as we read scripture. It's not a matter of knowing or understanding. It comes down to believing and trusting. So that's the first thing that we we read here in Luke 21, 23. And he's talking about Jacob's trouble. He's going to talking about the great tribulation. The, with the definite article. Okay. Turn to John chapter 3, verse 36. So far, we've looked at a few passages using that word wrath, the same Greek word wrath. Because after all, if we want to know what wrath is and who's the author and what's the point of it and what it's about, since Jesus is delivering you and I from it, we should study it to understand. And the only place I know where where I can get an exhaustive study On what wrath is according to God's definition and timing is the word of God. Scripture interprets scripture. It's it's not good enough for me to read a commentary from a man. I, I don't care about that. You shouldn't care if I write that. It doesn't matter. What does Jesus say and the holy word of God? Because if you take everything in context within scripture with good hermeneutics, the answer will be right before you. So John chapter 3 verse 36. Okay. Now, you remember chapter 3, verse 1, we're introduced to a Pharisee. Again, Nick at night, right? A man named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. Of course, he was. He's part of the Sanhedrin, one of the 70. And he comes to Jesus by night, and he, he says, Rabboni, a rabbi, teacher. And he says, most assuredly, I say unto you, Jesus answers him. He says, what are, what are the signs, right? What, what's going to happen? How do we know uh, and he goes through and he says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He's speaking on the spiritual plane, okay? And then he goes on, Jesus, verse 5, says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's speaking on the spiritual plane again. All right, so I'm reading John 3, 5, 3, 6, but our passage is really going to be in verse 36. But I want you to understand what was going on. He was talking about salvation. That's in context. What must someone do to be saved? How does one inherit the kingdom of God? This is what they were asking specifically. Nick, Nicodemus was asking to Jesus. It's a very legitimate, fair question, isn't it? What do we need to be doing? Because today there's a whole lot of people have a whole lot of opinions on that. You need to be Bereans, right? It doesn't matter what I say or what another man say. What does the word of God say? that is the the author. That is the most important aspect. What does the Word of God say? And he says that worshiping Buddha isn't going to get you to heaven. He says, worshiping Allah isn't going to get you to heaven. He says, worshiping whatever God you make of your hands isn't going to get you to heaven. There's only one God. There's only one Redeemer, and his name is Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, as we know in Scripture who died so that you and I could inherit eternal life because it's an inheritance, and we only give inheritance to who? Our children. Because we become the children of God. We were his creation, but according to scripture, we become his children. Now, as we read that, that would make sense. The question is, is this wrath going to be poured out on his children? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 10 says, no. He says, I'm going to deliver you from the wrath. Jesus is going to deliver you from the wrath. So far, everything we've said has been the same thing. We've seen nothing else contrary to that so far. What about verse 36 where it uses the term again? He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. There it is. And he who does not believe in the Son of God does not. Right? What? Shall not see life but the wrath, a conjunction chi again, but the wrath of God abides on him. So now Jesus Christ has set up a very clear uh, black and white dichotomy here, okay, if I can use it that way. He's saying those that accept Jesus Christ, right, will not experience the wrath. It will not be upon him. Those that do not uh, accept or receive Jesus Christ those the wrath will be upon him. Is everybody with me so far? Everybody see that in your scripture? This is beyond contestation. We get to the point in scripture where we literally have to say, if we start denying these facts, then we deny the gospel. Then we've manipulated and changed it, and then we're in the Galatians 1, 6, where they're worshiping an alternate gospel, right? So we, we must declare this truth, and we must acknowledge all of it. So that's the first thing that Jesus Christ very clearly and right in the right passage, uh, being talking about salvation, nobody questions whether John is talking about salvation or sanctification or I meant to say Nick, Nick and Demas was talking about salvation or sanctification. Everybody who reads John 3, whether you're, uh, you know, wherever you come in on the Christian scale, everybody knows that's a salvific passage. Nobody can question that. Nobody, no scholar does. No scholar does. So now all of a sudden, why would we try to, un, you know, misinterpret this or interpret this differently? We can't. He's saying those that are saved will see God. Those that are not saved will not have life, everlasting life. Those that are saved uh, will not experience the wrath. Those that are not saved, the wrath will be upon him. That's the word of God so far, okay? Let's turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 18, please. As the Lord continues to string pearls this morning. Now, as we look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18, we further get additional information. That's what happens when we read the word of God. We're drawn into more intimacy, deeper relationship. We begin to see more that God wants to reveal to humanity, to his creation and his children. In context, Romans chapter 16, uh, chapter one, I meant to say, verses 16 and 17 is talking about what? We can't miss it again. Justification by faith. He's simply talking about, again, salvation, that you're not saved by anything else. You are justified, a legal term, it's, a, it's an absolute legal term in the Greek. You are justified by Jesus, by the work on the cross, for those that believe in him, right? That's what he says there. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first in the Greek, for it, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So there it is. We receive the righteousness of God, okay. As is written, the just shall live by faith. Salvation. Nobody here is questioning that, right? Everybody gets it. We're staying in context. We have to read verse 18 now. Let's read further what he says. For the wrath of God. Now he goes again, just like we read over there in Luke. He does the same thing again. He sets up a clear dichotomy. You can't miss it. He says, for the wrath of God is reeled from heaven against what? Not some ungodliness. Please circle this. This is very important as we get to Revelation. He says all that all ungodliness is going to experience this. If I said to you that we're going to have a storm today and it's going to rain tremendously, but it's only going to rain in Harrisburg, you would look at me and if I said to you, that's a worldwide flood, you would look at me and say, no, pastor, that's not going to affect everyone. That's not all. That's only some or a portion of the people on the earth. Yes, you'd all agree with me, right? We know geography. We'd all You'd all agree with me. If I turn around and said to you with a very inclusive word, all. That speaks to what we saw in Genesis chapter six when there was a worldwide flood. All. That's what he's saying. Very important. He's not saying that we won't have affliction. He's not saying that we won't have suffering. He's not saying that we won't have tribulation. He is talking about here in context a wrath that's going to be poured out on all unrighteousness. Well, the only thing that my scripture speaks about, and we already are there in Luke and in Matthew 24, and you can keep going and more. The only thing talks about that is the great tribulation, where it's a wrath that's poured out on all unbelievers because it's the unrighteous. Jesus Christ saved you and I, didn't he? And he delivered us from all unrighteousness, scripture says. As a matter of fact, through his shed blood, he has conveyed, or we use a fancy term imputed, he has conveyed his righteousness upon us. And because he has done that, we are right, righteousness, right living, we are right before God our Father. Amen? Amen. Everybody here understands that, that these these things are beyond contestation again. Now he's telling us this is the wrath, that this wrath we're talking about here isn't just like, well, I'm going to have a little wrath like my toenail or my nail. It's got a little dirt under it, and it, you know it's causing an infection. And that's not what he's talking about. He's saying wrath, and it's going to affect everyone that is, according to this, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then he tells us something very important here. Very, very important. Because if God was a righteous judge, he must give this gift Freely to everyone. Otherwise, he's holding something back. There's a game afoot. There's something unrighteous. But he goes on to say that who suppress the truth. Have you ever wondered what happens when you give the gospel to somebody and they just look at you and they say, no, I I don't believe that. I don't don't agree with that. Christianity sounds very exclusive. It is. There's one God, one way. But yet it's so exclusive that it's inclusive and is an invitation to every single human being to receive Jesus Christ. That's the beautiful gift of it. It's called the gift of grace. He turns around and he says, and this is important, and I've always held on to this when I wonder why these things happen when you give the gospel and somebody doesn't. You know, why, Lord, Why? Because they suppress truth in unrighteousness. Do you see that? They suppress truth. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. It's already in them. Who's in them? He's saying the Holy Spirit's used to draw men and women to Jesus. But you know what they actually do? Through intellectualism, they suppress. What does it mean when I suppress something? If I have something coming up, I don't want it coming up. I'm pushing it back down, right? Because things are meant to come out, not to go up, right? We even understand the human anatomy. Forgive me for being so crass, but you get the point. We, that's what it is. They're suppressing through. It's not that they don't have a measure of faith, as we're going to read. It's not that they don't know. This has never been about konosko, Greek, to know. This isn't even Ido. Konosko is progressive. Ido is Jesus Christ, always knew. This isn't either one of those Greek words. The idea here is they understand, but it's not their way. It's not according to their will. And so because of that doesn't line up with that, they suppress it. We call that searing the Holy Spirit. It means that we know, but we choose to blow through the warning signs. We all know somebody like that. That was us. Before we were saved. It was you and I. We always knew, all of science, all of creation testifies. You can finish reading Romans one and two, all of it. I mean, even as you get into the, we don't have time this morning, but even if you get into the microscopic aspects of a cell, all evolutionary theory said that it would get simpler, not more complex, can't be. And yet, when we die, when we go to the cell and we look at the actual, we begin to see complexity, origin, design, intelligent design. And as God has allowed us to have more scientific uh, liberty to be able to study these things under microscopes, it's not that the evolutionist has gained more foothold. If anything, they've gained less. Because they've come back and said it's the exact opposite of what Darwin and what evolutionary theory taught. It was supposed to be simpler. We're supposed to not be able to find these things. There's a fossil record. We should see these things, these mutations. We should, we should be able to see these kinds, animals, right? We should be able to see that, that, that as DNA breaks down, a wolf, a dog, all from the same kind. We, and guess what? We do. We do. We do. The more we learn, the more we realize it's just as God's word has said. There's one race. There's one blood. We all got off the boat together. And all the infighting, whether it's gender, race, or nationality, or any of those things, those are products of men and women. Those are imaginary Products of men and women when they think, as God said in Genesis, only doing the evil and the works of your heart. I, again, for time's sake, we have to recognize that this isn't a matter of, of knowing. He tells us clearly that these attributes can clearly be seen in verse 20. Understood. By the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. And he says it very Use the word apologetic here. It's where we get our idea of apology, without excuse. Apologio, or our apologia. That's where we get that it's without excuse. This is the idea of it. This is what happens when we study the Word of God. Look at chapter two, verse five, please. He goes on to say, and he's talking about Paul, who wrote the letter to the Romans, whose church he had never visited. He goes on to talk about and, and more or less defends God's righteousness through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He goes on and says, But in accordance with the hardness and impotent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves the wrath, just so you understand, in the day of wrath. So nobody could misconstrue miscon- this and revelation of the righteous judgment of God that's what it is that this wrath is a judgment of God on all unrighteousness on those that reject Jesus and reject the witness that it actually is in them through the work of the Holy Spirit and all of creation that testifies So not only is creation testifying, our conscience is bearing witness. And if that wasn't enough, we have a measure of the Holy Spirit without measure that is telling us and we're suppressing that, the unbelievers. And because of that, we will be, those that are, will be found guilty of judgment. We will be judged for our desire to ignore, to suppress truth. That's what he's saying here. Look at chapter three, verse five. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? In other words, if it doesn't matter, is God unjust who inflicts wrath? Is God a, a, you know, just a tyrant judge, a maniacal judge? God forbid. He says, I speak as a man, by the way. This isn't inspired. He's saying, "I'm, I'm, I'm throwing a question out there, church. That's what Paul's saying here. And, and he comes back and certainly not. It would be blasphemous. For we read last week, remember, his love and his grace are the foundation of his throne. As we read last week, do you remember that? So justice, righteousness. For then how will God judge the world? He says, no, he is a righteous judge. There is no, there's no partiality. With God that way. Everything is righteous and it's a judgment. For what? For rejecting God. Because he's given every one of us the opportunity to receive him. And there should be no reason. Look at chapter 5 verse 9. He goes on to say much more than having now been justified by his blood. We shall be saved. He already said this in 1 Thessalonians. But he's saying it here again in in another way. We shall be saved from wrath through him. Why are we saved? Because of his blood. What is his blood done for you and I? What is the new covenant done for you and I? It separated us from our sin. It, we received a new nature. We're no longer working and operating under the old nature any longer. The edemic nature as we know it in scripture. We're a new creation, as he said, right? And all things have been made the same. Somewhat new? Kind of like if you went out and paid you know 50 grand and somebody says it's a new car and you get in it and it's got you know 100,000 miles on it, somewhat new? No. You'd turn back and go, what are you doing? I just bought this car and it was supposed to have very little miles, no miles on it. It's a brand new car. You would turn around and you would go to the righteous judge or a judge and you'd say, I want justice. Do you think the righteous judge is going to do anything halfway? Absolutely not. You're a new creation. All things have been made new. Who you were before Christ is not who you are now. And your propensity and capacity to sin is not the same. Romans 6 says that when we sin now, we willingly do that. Before, we were under the sin because of our old nature that we were born into. We didn't even have a choice in it, so to speak. We were born into that endemic nature. Now when we sin, we choose to. So, we read here, as he, as he said to us, you know, you know, verse 9, he went on and said, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. So the, the thing that's important there is that, as he said in 1 Thessalonians, verse 10 of chapter 1, that he would deliver us. Now we read we're saved, and the reason we're saved, and I think it's very conclusive, is because we've been saved because of the blood of the Lamb. He used the word blood there because of the blood of the Lamb that's taken away our sins. So God is clearly making an argument for us in Scripture that born-again believers cannot be saved. Or yeah, of course they can. They can be saved. They cannot experience wrath because they're not part of his, that's not part of his plan. The wrath comes as what? Judgment to those that do what? Deny or suppress the truth, knowing, and then turning around doing what? Rejecting Jesus Christ. Which, oh, by the way, as we read in Scripture, is the true definition for the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If you've ever worried about, can, you know, have you ever done that? Have I ever blasphemed the Holy Spirit? If you're worrying about it, you haven't done it. It's, it's the idea of rejecting Jesus. The Holy Spirit testifies of the Son. The Son testifies of the Father. So blaspheming the Holy Spirit is to reject the testimony of the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that naturally, of course, would be what? Enough to separate you from God. Because you have not chose reconciliation are you seeing these things? Turn to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. You know what? Turn to Ephesians 2 first. No, I just jumped out. I said, you know what? I'm going to start in two because I, I love how it he talks about here the, the, the battle going on in this world. Um, this is Holy Spirit driven, so I'm kind of going off I think this is, this is something to point out. Look what he says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. He says, and, and you he made alive, praise you, Jesus, who were dead in trespasses and sins, so far everything we've read has been saying that same thing, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, or the God of this world, according to the prince and power of the air, that's Lucifer, Satan, the spirit who now works in the sons of who? Disobedience. Please notice, he said the spirit. We're talking about spiritual matters here. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Now turn uh, to chapter 5, verse 6. He, he was telling them to be imitators of God, if you remember when we were in this passage of Ephesians. And he goes into the, to chapter 5, verse 6. He says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things... The wrath of God comes upon who again? The sons of disobedience. Who are the sons of disobedience? Those that work, you know, contrary to God, those that walk in the world that have the spirit of who? The prince of the air, who is who? Satan upon them. Bible tells you that you can't be walking in the light and have darkness in you. The light and darkness cannot coexist, which is fundamentally the reason why a believer in Christ cannot be demon-possessed. Do you see how this all is pulled together? You can't separate these things. Just like the assurance of salvation, just like the assurance that a believer can't be demon-possessed, can you be oppressed and afflicted? Oh, absolutely, but never demon-possessed. Are you all all with me, tracking with me this morning? It's powerful. It's powerful when we study the Word of God in context. Systematic theology, this is called. We're, We're taking a systematic theological approach. We're stringing pearls, okay? But look what it says here, okay? As we look at uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6, he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words because of these things. The wrath of God has come upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. We're to be holy and set apart. We're to have nothing to do with that. We're not to to go back to that life, to that world. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 6, please. Right now he's dealing with the carnality, right? Because remember we have a new nature in Christ. We talked about that. But even in uh, Colossians three, he's going through and he's talking about the carnality and the battle and the wage of the war and Jesus Christ, and the difference, right? Not carnality, but Christ. You know, if then we are raised with Christ, seek the things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Set your mind on these things. We just remember we just read this not too long ago because we were in Colossians just before we began uh, First Thessalonians. And look what he says to us here, as, as we, as we look at this. Look at verse six. He, he he's so gentle with us. How many times has he got to tell us, right? I, I need it. I'm glad he put it in there umpteen times. I need to to study these things. He tells me because of these things, because of what things? Well, let's back up. If then you were raised with Christ, seek these things which are above, which are which. Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of earth. For you died and your life is hidden within Christ and God. Wait a minute, you mean I'm dead right now? Chapter 3, verse uh, 3. He's talking on the spiritual plane, right? He's not saying physical. Again, we got to recognize what he's saying here, right? When Christ, who is our life, appears... Because he's going to, you know, not only has he redeemed us, but he's going to resurrect us. You will also appear with him in glory, absent with the body, present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5 8. Amen, amen, amen. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. Now he goes through and he starts talking about these members, these things that we did. No longer do, don't desire to do, don't have an aim of. But the old life, the old way, BC, before Christ, right? It was what? Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. You see that? Idolatry? That what separates you from God. All sins that are focused on self. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. He's saying because of these things, these are coming on unbelievers. Those that are still walking in those things. Look, we sin. We, we fall short of the glory of God. Certainly, uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 23. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6, 23, right? We know these things. But at the end of the day, do we still sin? Yes. Is it our aim to sin? No. But there's a difference between presumptuous sin continuing on in our sin and being like, I'm going to suppress it because it's not what I want. Right? I want to do what God says. I want to do what I want to do. That's suppressing truth. There's a difference between that and there's the difference between falling short and methaniah, turning to God and repenting and then turning away from that sin and not continuing to do it over and over and over and over again. You see, he's, he's showing us the evolution here, if I can use it that way, of what it is to be a, a son or a daughter in Jesus Christ. He's freeing us these things. Now, let's go to Thessalonians since we're in that passage. Let's look at verse, or chapter 5, verse 9. Now, at this point, I think we're all getting the The gist of it that God has not given the church unto wrath. I think we've all got the gist of what the wrath is. It's not just a little wrath in our lives. He said all, so we're talking about a worldwide wrath, and he also described that wrath as part of God's judgment to those that are sons of disobedience. And we know those are those that have the spirit of uh, Lucifer, Satan, not not the spirit of God, born again believers. So I think we're all tracking. we're, We're making our progress. Now we come to verse nine. He said, "For God and He's." We're going to read this in a few weeks in Thessalonians, if the Lord should tarry. For God did not point us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. He does it again. Once again, we see how he takes salvation, and he uses that as one extreme, or not extreme, but one attribute compared against another attribute, right? Which is not believing in Christ. For God did not appoint us. Who's us again? He used that same us before. The church, the ecclesia, he used it back in chapter one, right? In verse 10, when he says he delivers us, same idea, it's us. Who's us? The church. Because that's what he's talking to, the church in Thessalonica, but he's talking to the church worldwide, the ecclesia. To wrath, we already know what wrath is. We've studied that. That's the judgment of God. It's going to be poured out on all humanity that it rejects Jesus Christ. He says, but there's a conjunction here, Kai, to obtain salvation, Through the Lord Jesus Christ. So guess what? If you obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ and you are saved, the wrath isn't coming upon you. For God did not appoint us to wrath because he desired to save us. That's what he says. He says it again. Remember we read it in John 3? He says it again. Again he says the same thing, okay? But maybe there's still somebody here going, but pastor, I, I don't know. Good, I'm glad. Turn to Revelation chapter 6. Let's look at verse 16. We'll spend the rest of the service just looking at these passages because it is truly beyond contestation. I love my brothers and sisters that are searching and, and they're wondering, wait a minute, are the church going to go through great church? And We don't got to divide or depart from We love them. They're brothers in Christ. But I want everybody here to have that assurance because Jesus Christ said so. He says, I want to give you that assurance. I want you to have that hope. And I want you to be able to describe the faith that you have as the hope that lies within you. So let's look at Revelation chapter 6, verse 16. And maybe on your way of turning there, why don't you stop off on Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. We'll just hang a quick left for a minute, right? A couple pages back, right? A quick left back to Revelation chapter 4. He says, after these things, underline that in your Bible. Meo in the Greek, right? Meo tauto. Just, just, check that in your mind, because he's talking about after what? After the church age, because chapter two and three are talking about the church. After these things, if I say I'll meet you after service, you don't expect us to meet now, do you? And you don't expect, you're not going to show up here before service. I'm not grammatically, uh, you know, I'm not grammatically challenging, neither is the Lord after these things. Keep that in your back pocket for a minute. Just hold on to that right in the, in the, in the aspect of your heart. Hold that. Now, turn to Revelation chapter 6, verse 16. You're going to look at this in a minute, it's going to come up as we continue reading in Revelation. Look what he says. After these things, meo tauto, so the, now, we're, now we're past the church age. Now we're at the age where we're looking between John is taking us between the throne room of heaven and earth. And he's going to introduce us to something called sealed judgments. And they're ap- aptly called that because it's all about the day of the Lord now. It's all about. What's happening, right? It's all about the great tribulation that's going to be poured out and all humanity is going to be what? Impacted by this. And the people that are going to be going through this great tribulation, are they the saints? No, because the saints aren't given under wrath as we've read in John 3 and John 6 and Matthew and Luke and on and on and on as we've already gone through it. So here we are and we're reading about this. Now, the question is, is we already have, uh, have discerned through scripture that the revel- that uh, the, the wrath is poured out because of judgment. And we said God. But now let's get really specific. Which person? The Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit? Because that's important. Look at verse 16. And he said to the mountain and rocks, fall on us. And this is the people, what they're doing because of the sixth seal and the cosmic disturbances that are coming. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. And from the who? Wrath of the Lamb. Who's the the author of the wrath? Jesus. Jesus. And again, why is he pouring that wrath out? On a Christ-rejecting world that continues to sin and walk in unrighteousness. Also referred to, aka, also known as sons of disobedience, not only in Ephesians 2, but also in Ephesians 5. Just so we're tracking. Okay. Okay. So he's, te- he's telling us that for the great day of his wrath, now I'm so glad that he used the definite article, the great day. This isn't just a little affliction. This isn't just a little oppression. This isn't just a little wrath. The great day. Everywhere in scripture, the great tribulation, the great day in the Old Testament, Jacob's trouble. All referring to a day or a period of seven years where great tribulation is going to unfold. And within the first year alone, a quarter of the population, 7.4 billion, roughly 1.8 billion people will die. We just are coming, hopefully, Lord willing, through the end of this COVID. I don't know if you saw the Johns Hopkins report. They're saying by April now, they believe we'll have herd immunity. All right, that was a recent um, post in the Wall Street Journal. I sent it out to some of the church leadership. I encourage you to look at that. We don't know. God's in control. But we now know at least over 50% of the population has already had COVID or, or experienced COVID. So this has already happened, okay? Um, so we know that there were or 500, maybe even 600,000 deaths, let's just say, in America. Worldwide, let's say a few million, okay? One's too many. I think we all agree, and our hearts and sympathy go out to all those that have lost loved ones. Uh, we pray they're believers in Christ and are with Jesus right now. But I want you to understand the difference between 4 million and 1.8 billion. It's a magnification that I don't think we can properly understand until we put it in light. Everything that we have just seen the, the the pandemic and the fear and everything that went through that, the safety measures and everything we're taking, I want you to understand that in the realm of a few, you know, 3 or 4 million people maybe, What's it going to be like to be alive at that time? I wouldn't wish it on my enemy to have 1.8 billion people and not just through pestilence or famine because that will come as part of these judgments but that's just from your trees and the plankton in the water. If you know where does where does most of your air come from, friends, we studied this. I encourage you, if you were not with us and we went through the book of Revelation, it's online. It's on the church app. Download the Calvary Chapel, Harrisburg church app. Listen to this teaching. Listen to these teachings or go to the website. You can get it. Kevin can direct you. It's right up online. You can download the app. Free of charge. Go up and get the word of God and go through it with me as we study it together. I'd love to do that with you. And technology's allowed that today. We really have no excuse. It's, it's provided that way. We can really study the word of God. But I want you just to think about this, this great tribulation and these seals that are going to be poured out. We clearly know he's talking about the great tribulation. There's no question. Nobody gets to Revelation chapter 6 and says, I don't think we're talking about the great tribulation here because of the death toll, because of the significance of the wrath. Nobody, Not even scholars that may say, you know what? I think the church is going to go through the Great Tribulation. Even they don't discount and deny this. They, they accept this. Everybody does because it's called for this is the great, da- this is the great day of the wrath that has come. Who is able to stand? Nobody. It's beyond conjecture. It's beyond contestation. Now, 1.8 billion people are going to die. And I know there's people here today that may be saying, you know what? I'll wait to get saved in the Great Tribulation. Absolutely not. Or as Paul would say, certainly not. Certainly not. Look what we've gone through just in this last year since March. And that's going to seem like small dealings compared to what it's going to be like to go through this great tribulation. Again, if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you have not received him as Lord and Savior, what are you waiting for? God desires that no one would go through this judgment because it's a judgment for rejecting Christ. Receive your Lord and Savior. But as I was saying scientifically, back in our context here, you could take a, a, a middle school, high school science teacher, and if you ask them clearly where, where does most of our air come from? Would you say the trees or would you say the water and the, and the green leaf and the plankton, all those things that live in the water that produce air and you have evapotranspiration which goes up, they know the answer just as well as I do and so do the scientists. A majority of it will be in the water, and in the trees, and when those are destroyed, do you know what it's going to feel like to try to believe? Smog? You've been around smog? (laughs) Nothing. I mean, you're going to lose a quarter to a half of your air-producing vegetation. Just breathing. To think what it would be like to walk. I I, I used to snowboard. I was a snowboarder at one time. I used to do the back bowls. You ever been to Breckenridge or Aspen or any of these places? Talk to somebody who's a tower. You go to these places, right? You do the back bowls, right? Highly encourage it if you have never hiked it. It's awesome. Go up there, 13,000, 15,000 feet elevation. Takes you a few hours to hike up after you take the chair up as far as you can go. But I'll tell you what. You hike for three and four hours, and I've done that. I am out of breath. And I did that when I was 25. All right, and I'm out of breath, and I was in great shape. I was a hockey player, okay? I had good lung capacity. And everybody that's with me, we take a step. You know what you do? You break bread up there. You stop, you pull out an orange, you have a little orange, and then you turn around, and you take the 15, 20-minute ride down on beautiful, fresh powder like you've never seen on the East Coast. But the reality is, sorry, I didn't mean to go off on that squirrel trail. I'm just saying if you've never done it, you you should do it. It's a lot of fun. But the reality is you turn around, and, and you're out of breath. And that's at a higher altitude. Can you imagine when a quarter to half of the entire vegetation's gone? Just being at a normal altitude, you're going to feel like you're constantly winded. Do you know how you feel when you're winded? You lose energy. You, you don't feel like you're, you're lethargic. You don't feel good. I just want everybody to understand, this is, this is nothing to play with. We, there's no reason. And yes, there will be people that come to Christ in the Great Tribulation. And we're going to see how God handles that because it's not God that brings judgment upon them because they're believers then because that's the other question. What well, if people are saved, then what happens? We'll, we'll, we'll get there, but I just want you to see that this is the wrath and it's poured out because of rejecting Jesus Christ. Turn to Revelation chapter 11, please, verse 8. 18, let's make it 18. Revelation chapter 11, verse 18. Now. This is the seventh trumpet that's poured out, okay? And look what they read. The nations were angry and your wrath has come and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants and your prophets and your saints and those who fear your name small and great and you should destroy those who destroy the earth. Are they still in the great tribulation? Yes, they are. Because obviously there's judgments that are poured out. They're called trumpet judgments. And then there's a final judgment that'll be poured out, and those are called bold judgments. Again, if you haven't studied this, if you studied this, you know where I'm at. I'm, I'm simply taking you through this, showing the progression that the wrath is still poured out. Now, turn to chapter 14. Look at verse 10. You know, I... When I was teaching for a service, let me back up a second. You stay where you are there. I made sure to point out that chapter 13 is talking about the Antichrist, the beast, right? Uh, Specifically, chapter 12, verses 13 through 17 is talking about the dragon who's known as Satan. Chapters 13, 1 through basically 10 is talking about the Antichrist. And then if you read chapter 13, verses 11 through 18, you're reading about the false witness. We call it the unholy trinity. He's all he is is a copycat. That's all Satan ever is. He never possesses anything in eternality. So he tries to copy everything God has done. He's an imitator. That's why he appears as an angel of light, but he's not. He's an imitator. And I don't know about you, but look, I've substituted a lot of things in my life. It's never as good as the real thing. The substitute is never as good as the real thing that's genuine. Although they can, you know, sin can please or feel good for a time. It's, it's just not. So if you look at, uh, let's see, 14, chapter 14, look at verse 10. He's talking about, additionally, the three angels that are going to pour out the wrath of God. You can even back up to verse 10 there. He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Who's he? Right? Well, let's back up. Verse 6. Then I saw, and we're in chapter 14, by the way. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. People will get saved during the great tribulation. Saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory for the hour of his judgment is come again, the great tribulation, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen the great city, because she made all the nations drink of the wine of her wrath, of her fornication. She's referred to often, the Babylon also means the world, it's a a type for the world. It also speaks to, and I I know we have young people here, so I want to be careful with my words, but the great whore. That's the term it's used also to think of Babylon or Satan or, or the mistress that way. So, um, you know, you get the point. Verse nine. Then an angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wrath of God. Who's he talking about? Is he talking to the believers of the church here? No, because you don't read about the church after chapter 3. After chapter 4 through chapter 19, you don't see one word in the Greek for ecclesia or the, you know, the church that way in any capacity. Because guess what, friends? We're missing. And that's called the harpazo and the rapture. We're not here. You don't see one thing about the church here. He himself who shall drink. Now, look, we did read, and this is important because people ask, Again, people get saved during the tribulation. So there will be people that come to Christ during the tribulation. There will be saints here. But we're going to see what's going to happen with those saints in a little bit. So he goes on and says, Another angel followed him, saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen the great city, because she has made her drink the wine of the wrath of the fornication. Then an angel followed him, saying, with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. What's the wrath of God? The judgment for... Those that reject Jesus, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of the torment ascends forever and ever. And they'll have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark in his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who has kept, keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, white Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they that they may have rest for their labors and the works that follow them. Those are the saints that get martyred. Those are the saints that come to Christ during that time. Friends, you don't you don't want to wait. You don't want to wait to the great tribulation. And who's the one that brings this killing and this wrath? Well, to find that out, let's back up a little bit to chapter 13. Then I stood on the sand of the sea and saw a beast rising up out of the sea, that's the Antichrist, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his seven horns ten crowns, and on his head blasphemous names. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave his, his power. Who's the dragon? Look back up to chapter 12, verse 13. It's Satan. His throne and great authority. And I saw on one of his heads and have been mortally wounded. This is describing how the Antichrist is going to have a mortal wound to the head yet healed. And it's miraculous. Nobody can explain it, okay? And his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast because they couldn't believe how he was healed. It was a miracle. Guess what, friends? Satan can do miracles too. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like this beast or who's like the beast who was able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth of speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. You ever wondered why we got three and a half years? Also in Daniel. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war. Please see this. Who's making war with the saints? Is it judgment that's poured out by God to those that get saved in the great tribulation? No, because he wouldn't be a righteous God. And he already said that he would did what? He delivered us. Granted, we're not in the great tribulation. But when somebody gets saved in the great tribulation, is he not going to turn around and help them? He's not going to re-rapture them again, though. There's no more translations. We read of one rapture and those that get saved in the great tribulation, they're going to face a war. And we already read that wars with the Antichrist. We know what's going to happen because we skipped ahead sort of to 14 to read that that they may rest from their labors and their works will follow them. Then I heard a voice from saying, saying that it was worth it, that God had allowed that to happen, but they're going to face martyrdom. They're not going to get raptured out when they get saved in the middle of tribulation. Sometimes people ask that. Is there going to be a rapture in the tribulation? No, it's before. And if you read on, he says here, That it was granted him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given over every tribe, tongue, and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose name has not been written in the book of life, or of the lamb slain for the foundation. You're gonna have your name in, your name has to be in to be taken out, right? If anyone has an ear, let him hear, he who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints you understand he uses that word, the patience and faith of the saints again, just like we read in chapter 14, because they're wondering in the great tribulation, how much longer is this pouring out of judgment and destruction going to last? That's how horrific it is. And they're being martyred by antichrist because they come to faith. And I praise God that they come to faith, but what a time to do it. Oh my, aren't you glad that we are live and we have a choice right now for Jesus so that we don't have to go to this? I'll go through this. These are are sobering things here. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having seven last plagues. For in them the wrath of God is complete. Do you see that? The great tribulation is going to be complete after these seven last plagues, which you are, if you studied with me, you know, or, you know, read the word of God, you know that's in Revelation chapter 16. It's talking about the last judgments that are poured out, the bold judgments. So we've got bookends, right? Please notice with me, this is very important, that I saw another sign having great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, and the wrath of God is complete. Look down at verse 5 of 15. After these things, he talks about what's going to happen after these things too, but just just so you see it. Turn to chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice. From the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the bowls of what? Of wrath. I'm still tracking. This is judgment. Of God on the earth. And then you'll, you'll find those bowls uh, poured out. Look at verse 19. Now the great city was divided into three parts and the cities and the nations fell and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of wine of the fairness of what again? His wrath, Right. And then chapter 19, verse 15. And let me just back up to chapter 19, verse 1. Do you remember when I asked you to go to chapter 4, verse 1, and I taught you and showed you the Greek, after these things, meo telltale in the Greek, and it means after an age, after a time, after these things? You remember that? Chapter 19 begins, we already read that once the seven bowls were poured out, that has been complete by now. Chapter 19 introduces, really, it's after these things, so it's after the great tribulation. The picture is now us, we're now, in other words, John is now up in the throne room of heaven. He's looking at the heavenly things, no longer what's on the earth at the moment. Look what it says in chapter 19, verse 1. Underline it again. After these things. Did you see that? It's a bookend. Chapter 4 begins it. Chapter 19 ends it. And everything in between is talking to the church. Not speaking, not talking to the church, but talking to those that are alive on the earth. And yes, people will get saved at that time, but they will go through great martyrdom. He goes, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to our Lord, our God. So you can't take the chapter nineteen one. And say all of a sudden, now I believe the after these things. And then ignore the chapter 4 verse 1 at the end of the church age that says after these things. You can't do it. That's that's not good hermeneutics. That's picking and, you know, parceling. You you can't do that. Well, I guess you can do it, but it's not right. (laughs) He says, salvation and glory and honor belong to our Lord, our God, for the true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who has corrupted the earth with her fornication. He has avenged her, on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again, they said, Alleluia, worshiping, smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on, their own, on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then the voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of great multitudes, as the sound of many waters, as the sound of a mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns, all powerful. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the land has come, and his wife has made herself ready. Mm. Where, Where are we when all this was going on? We were in heaven. Remember after these things? So we weren't here for that. Right? Remember, time exists differently in heaven. Right. It's not like every day is the same every day in heaven. So if you had to skip ahead at chapter two and three, when we were raptured out after the church age, because that's actually what ends, we, if we were part of the rapture plan, we went to be right with Jesus and we began the wedding feast of the Lamb. But for those that were not raptured out, they had seven long years on earth. If they live that long, many will die within the first year of a great tribulation. And then after God is judging that seven years and he pours out all, the, all of the judgment, all of the wrath of the Lamb, at that point he then comes and all those saints that got either martyred, okay, during the great tribulation are now up in heaven All right, because when you're dead, 2 Corinthians 5, absent with the body, present with the Lord. Those that are dead are now up together with the church, the ecclesia, that has already been in heaven. And now together, we are all partaking of the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's what we see here. And then he reads, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said, Write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true sayings of God, their beatitudes. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and your brethren who have testimony of Jesus. He says, Let's not do Genesis three all over again, huh? We don't need another Adam and Eve situation on our hands, where you listen and you worship the devil. Over, the, over worshiping God because you wanted to be like God. That's exactly how he was tempted and Adam likewise. He says, no. He says, you don't worship angels. You only worship one person and that's the living God. And he makes it very clear. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That which was not known has now been made known. And... Whoever has the spirit of philosophy, prophecy will convey Jesus and his love for his people. And that's now all of you this morning. That's all of you this morning. You can turn back and let's go back to verse 10 as we close. One verse, but a powerful verse, amen? A verse that took us on a journey this morning in the word of God. And I encourage you to be Bereans. I encourage you to go home and study these things. If you want a copy of the uh, recording, uh, Kevin in the back of the booth, he's got it. They're free. Take one. Study these things, please. Because God's going to use you to give hope the way that he's given you hope and assurance this morning. He wants to, give you, he wants to use you to give that to others that right now they're wavering. They thought, they thought COVID was it. They didn't realize, they didn't, they, they don't, a lot of people don't know, they don't know the word yet. These are all just labor pain. This is, this is not it. There are people that are looking right now for the, the, the mark of the beast. And it's the same thing. You, you can't have a mark of the beast if the beast ain't here. It's the same idea. Don't be looking for the mark of the beast. The beast isn't here yet. If he was here, we're not. Amen. Amen? Okay. Because he doesn't come out and disclose himself. And then all the nations, you will study Daniel. We'll look at all these things. But we need to be Bereans. We need to know prophecy. We need to know end times events. And, and this is only, oh man, we're just starting. I mean, we have a whole four cha- you know, chapters of Thessalonians that we're going to go through and look at these. Such a prophetic book. Because First Thessalonians just looks at the rapture and the harpazo. Second Thessalonians goes through the actual summing terra, uh, second coming of Christ, the parousia, the touchdown, the terra firma on earth. Powerful. Powerful stuff. So now let's read verse 10 again, corporately as a a bride of Christ. If you'll read out loud with me, I'd like to read this out loud that the word of God would be in the air and settle in our hearts and be sealed. I'll start, let's do this together. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. There it is, friends. Nothing more I can add to it. Will the worship team come up, please? we have been delivered by Jesus Christ. We need to worship God. We need to praise him because we will not be going through this wrath, the great tribulation. But friends, the minute you walk out of these doors and you get in your car or you walk down the street, I assure you around every side of you, there is somebody that's today destined to go to hell and to go through the great tribulation first if they do not die before and because they have not received the gospel Of Jesus Christ. And you and I have been given a great truth. A great honor and privilege. To give the word of God. In faithfulness. To let people know. That Jesus loves you. And he died for you. And if you just receive him. You will be reconciled. To your father in heaven. Never separated again. And to enjoy that beautiful relationship. For all of eternity because he's madly in love with you and we're madly in love with him father just as you overheard here this this morning i pray god i take this word and seal it into the hearts of your people lord equip them to be able to go and give the good news of your gospel lord we know that we can do nothing good of our own but you jesus through your word all things are possible Lord, let us be others focused. Let us have compassion in heart and let us be ready for the days ahead. Lord, thank you that we are not walking aimlessly, that we know exactly what's coming and how it's going to come. And thank you, Jesus, that we'll be looking down from the mezzanines, but we pray right now, save now, Anna in the Hebrew, Lord. Save now, Lord Jesus, the lost and dying world that have rejected you, even those that are suppressing the truth. Lord, one more opportunity, Lord. One more opportunity, please, Jesus, for we were no different at one time. We pray and ask us in your holy and mighty and merciful name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed. Amen. Will you stand with me if you're able, and let's worship.